It's the hope we have, right? And um, if you've got your Bibles, you can turn them to uh, Romans chapter 5. We're going to be covering verses 3 through 5 today. And those verses is what you professed in our profession of faith. Uh, but so far in chapter 5, Paul has said that since we have been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through Jesus, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So here's what I want you to picture in your head. Because of the foundation that we stand on, which is the doctrine of justification, thus giving us access to God's grace, his abundant, marvelous, empowering grace that transforms us, we look ahead to what he's going to do, what we just sang about, and we hope in that day. We hope in the glory of God on full display. You remember last week we read Revelation and talked about how every tear will be wiped away and how Christ is making all things new. And there will come a day where that work is finished and all things have been made new. So again, we've been justified by God. We have peace with him, given us access. He's called us to look ahead. So you've got where we're standing, and he's calling us to look ahead. But what about the in-between? What about today? What about tomorrow? What about next week? What about the years ahead? I was talking with Reagan Phillips just this past week, and she was showing me... um, I was getting a brain map done. She was showing me how my brain functions like a 10-year-old with severe ADD. And that's another topic uh, that we're working through. But we got to share, uh, she got to share with me so much out of her uh, professional experience, talking to tons and tons of people. And this is one thing that she said to me. She said, Corey, many Christians believe and understand that God has justified them. And they know that one day he will make all things new. They believe that, but they still struggle with the in-between, those two points. They still struggle, sometimes feeling like, what is the point of this in-between? What's the point? And Reagan is right. Life is difficult. Carson just shared that with us in his testimony. Life is difficult for teenagers, In the in-between, sometimes the struggle and pain and stress just seem too much. And when the statistics back this up, since the year 2000, suicides are up 30%. In 2020, there was an estimated 1.2 million attempted suicides. 1.2 million. Church, that's one in about... 300. One out of 300 attempting to end their life because they don't see life worth living. So it's obvious that everyone deals with pain and suffering. That includes Christians. Some people might preach a a gospel that tells you being a Christian exempts you from pain and suffering. Call it the prosperity gospel, and we would say that's foolishness and not biblical. Christians are subject to suffering, but what is 
the Christians answer to the suffering that we face in this in-between. We know and believe that God has justified us, given access to his grace, and that one day he will make all things new. But what about the in-between? That's exactly where Paul goes today in verses 3 through 5, the in-between. So will you read this with me? And I'm going to start in verse 1 so that we kind of hit this in stride. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, verse 3, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Father, this is your word, and we are praying today that you would speak to your people. And God, we also pray that if there are people here that are not your people, we know that's the case, we pray, God, that you would compel them, you would call them to yourself, that they may believe. You would give them the gift of faith today to trust in Christ and not themselves, and they would be saved. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today's message, as you can see on the screen, is called The Love-Fueled Process. You might find that odd, but let me explain. As we've already said, God has justified us, and he's promised to glorify us in the future when he makes all things new. So, in the here and now, we believe from Scripture that he has sovereignly orchestrated a process that all of us would undergo. A process where, in the words of John the Baptist, we become lesser and he becomes greater. A process where, in the words of Peter, he makes us holy as he is holy. A process that is often referred to as sanctification. J.C. Ryle, who's a bishop from the 1800s, says this concerning sanctification. He says, if the Bible is true, and we believe it to be, it is certain that unless we are sanctified, we shall not be saved. So you see how important this process is. Too often, church, we're fixated on where we are and where we're going. And we forget all about the process that lies in between. But the process matters. Process matters. So in this passage, Paul wants us to understand how the process works as well as clue us in on the fuel for this process. Hence, your title, The Love-Fueled Process. Paul begins verse 3 by stating that we rejoice in our sufferings. Bruce shared with me last week uh, from his NASB translation. It's the official nerdy translation. (laughs) We celebrate in tribulations is what that translation says. So the literal meaning of this statement is we glory, we boast in, we celebrate when bad things happen, trouble or burdens come our 
way. The word for suffering or tribulation here isn't limited to Christian persecution. It's actually a very general word for all trouble, church. All trouble. Trouble that includes losing your job for speaking out about your faith. Being labeled an outcast for not participating in debauchery. Marital strife. Parenting problems. Major health issues. Abuse. Trauma. Broken relationships. A flat tire. A stubbed toe. Loss of sleep from a newborn baby. And just about anything else that you can think of that ranges from a life-altering incident to a minor inconvenience. All of it's included here in this suffering word. And Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, can we just be honest and admit that's a little crazy? Thank you. <laughs> I don't want us to, to, to be fake this morning. And I can even imagine Paul going around on his missionary journeys preaching stuff like this real, with all vigor because he believes it, right? We rejoice in our sufferings. And everybody was with him up until he said that. And then they're like, what? Wait, hold up. I don't know if I'm on that train. And if we're telling the truth this morning, church, we don't do this. I'm reminded of this this week as my newborn baby will not sleep. If you people had cameras at my house, you would think I was crazy, okay? But at 2 in the morning, I'm holding this child, and I'm, I need sleep. And I just start quoting this verse. We rejoice in our sufferings. <laughs> Suffering produces, and so I've got this scripture memorized, all right? I've said it 100 times at 2 a.m., but if we're honest, we would say we do the opposite of rejoicing in our sufferings. We, we actually grieve. We shy away from, we hate when bad things, our trouble, our suffering comes our way. Amen? And let me be quick to say, this is a naturally, well, it's a natural, naturally a correct inclination. So we're not all wrong for this. Hear me out. A person who loves trouble is a fool. You understand? Someone told me that at one point in church history, uh, the church actually put out a statement that if, you, the statement said, if, if your martyrdom was caused by your own foolishness, bringing trouble on yourself, you would not be a martyr. The church would not write you in as a martyr. So I want to be clear that what Paul is not saying is that we should seek out trouble or suffering or pain. That's not what Paul's encouraging here. Trouble is painful. Trouble scars our life. Trouble leaves us with distress that is often long-lasting. So we should never be people who seek out trouble. Do you understand, church? However, when trouble comes upon you, Paul says, we Rejoice, church. And here's why. Look at the very next word. It says, knowing. And just pause right there. Knowing. This is a key to understanding this text. Commentators say that it is our understanding, our knowing, that is 
causal in the rejoicing. So our knowing and understanding is actually what causes us to be able to rejoice. And we're going to get what it is that Paul says we must know or understand soon. But before we do, I want to illustrate this point. So don't miss it. Um, when, I was a, when I was a kid, I thought back on this this week, uh, I think I was probably around the age of 12. Uh, this is very shameful, especially now that I have kids. And my oldest is five, and I expect a whole lot out of her. Her mother and I both do. Um, but I was 12 and I was a child, and I would get sick, and my mom would take me to the doctor's office, as a good mother does. And I was very perceptive as a 12-year-old. I'd walk in that doctor's office. I'd begin scoping things out. And as I got taken back into the room, I would begin uh, watching the process. I was somewhat familiar with it. I was seeing what was going on. And if I ever saw a needle come out and come toward my person... I'm not lying about this. This is true, and you're going to find this hard to believe. I would get up, forcefully leave the doctor's office room, and go to the parking lot. And I remember one time on the, the, the little urgent care place right out on Quintard, I literally was having a standoff with my mom in the parking lot. She was screaming at me because I was very sick to come in and get this medicine. And I was saying, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. Right? I was 12 years old. I think how much I love my mother. Because I think if my 12-year-old does that, I'm going to lock them up in a closet that will never see the light of day again. <laughs> Parents are awesome. But the, here's the thing. The reason I got up and left the office was I wasn't about to let anyone make me suffer under a needle was not going to let anybody poke me with a needle. I didn't care how sick I was. I didn't care what the needle was being used for. None of that mattered to me in that moment. All I was sure of was that you're not going to touch me with that needle. Church, I had no understanding nor knowledge. And on top of the lack of understanding or knowledge, I didn't care to have understanding or knowledge. There was no person that could show up in that moment and talk me in back into the office. Because in the words of Kanye West, you can't tell me nothing. Right? You couldn't. You could not tell me nothing in that moment. And that's a funny illustration, but listen to me. There are some of you in this room today. I want, you, I want, to, I want to bring this back in. Please listen to me. There's some of you in this room today who have this attitude. There's nothing I could say today that would change your mind about the trouble or suffering that you will or you have faced. In your mind, there's no rejoicing in it. It's bad. It's evil. It's caused you to lose sleep. It's caused strain on your marriage and on your family. It's hurt you in ways that are impossible to put into words. Even now, some of you are sitting here, and as I'm talking about you're having like PTSD. You're saying, can we please stop? I'm going to have to leave. This is not a joking matter because pain and suffering is tough and takes a toll on us. But I'm pleading with you today to lean in this morning and listen to what God's word has to say to you. Paul says, we rejoice in our suffering 
knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul says, God is at work, church. He's at work in your life, transforming you into his image by building up your endurance and character. And this can only be done through suffering. Paul says, you've got to know, though. You've got to know. It's, it's the knowing. You've got to know. This suffering is not arbitrary. It's not random chance. And, and church, the, the suffering's not meaningless. It's not meaningless suffering. But oftentimes it can feel that way. Listen to the Ecclesiastes writer in chapter 8, verse 14. The writer says, There is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve, and the wicked get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. Don't you feel that way at times? Some of you serve God and you love him with all your heart, yet it seems that your plight in life is one of pain and suffering. Where is God? Why doesn't he care? Why does he allow me to go through this again and again? Well, the Ecclesiastes writer wants you to know that under the sun, there is no answer. Listen to him in verse 15. He says, so I commend because all that's meaningless, I commend the enjoyment of life because there's nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat, drink, and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in all their toil, all the days that God has given them under the sun. Church, isn't this how the world lives? Seeking endless enjoyment of life, eating and drinking, seeking pleasures and avoiding trouble at all costs, right? You see, the world flees from trouble because it's an obstacle to their pleasure. It's an obstacle to what I want for my life. But listen to me. When we become Christians, when we take up our cross and choose to follow Jesus, what we are saying is have your way, Lord. The scripture calls us to offer up ourselves as living sacrifices. Jesus says we have chosen to lose our life for his sake. What does this mean? Well, it means that we embrace whatever our good father sends our way. That's what it means. Think about what you suffered just this past week. How much did you squirm and try to get out from under it or run away from it or remove it from you? Oftentimes when young guys first begin lifting weights, they don't like the pain of being underneath a barbell. They try to get the weight off of them as quick as possible. But what I try to tell my guys is, that you need to focus in that moment that that weight is on you. Because it's while that weight is on you that it is working something in you that cannot be worked 
if that weight is off of you. Do you understand? So I tell them, get comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's where growth happens. These things can't be built another way. And that's essentially what Paul is saying here. He's saying that this suffering is working something in you that could not be worked if you did not sit under it. Specifically, he says in verse 3 that this suffering is producing endurance. Endurance, church. You ever thought how important endurance is in the Christian life? Let me just show you what the scriptures say about endurance. In the parable of the soils, Jesus says that the good soil are those who hear the word, hold fast to it, bear fruit, and guess what? Endure. That's the good soil. When Jesus is uh, foretelling of the future persecution in Luke 21, he says to his followers that by their endurance, they will gain their lives. James says, when endurance, the word in your Bible might be steadfastness, it's the same word Paul uses, when your endurance has its full effect, we will be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Church endurance is a gift from God that he has ordained for you to receive through suffering. 1 Peter 2.21 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ has also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Jesus said it like this, No servant is greater than his master. So Paul says that suffering produces endurance, which is vital for the Christian life. And he goes on to say, look, look, he says, endurance produces character. Produces character. Now some would define character as what you do when no one's watching. And that works. Google defines character as the mental quality our moral quality or distinctive that are distinctive to an individual. But the Greek word here for character adds the idea of proof or validation. So think about this. We've, we've all seen too many politicians try and pretend to be someone that they're not during when? Campaign season, election time, right? Right? They try to shine a light on all the good that they're doing in the community to provide proof or validation that they would serve well in whatever office that it is. And back in the day, you know, they could get away better with this than they can now. But nowadays we have what? The internet that anybody can post stuff on. (laughs) The internet serves as a way where anybody who sees this person can quickly share information about them that will blow them up and defame them by shining a light on their true character by showing what they've done in the past or showing what they're up to, their shady stuff, right? The stuff that nobody wants to to have a light shown on. Thus, disproving the narrative that the person looking to get elected is trying to sow and disproving and validating them as a candidate. 
So check this out. Our endurance through suffering produces a character that proves that it is the proof, it provides proof or validation of, and this is very important, listen, what does it provide proof of? A change in our person. A change. Thomas Schreiner says this about about this character right here in this context. He says, after one endures many difficulties, a strength of character develops that was not previously present. Wasn't previously there. So understand, this isn't a embettering of your person. This is a new character that God has formed through your endurance of suffering. And let me, just, let me just tell you that this will not be a clean and neat process. You will not endure suffering perfectly and flawlessly, and therefore you will not yield a perfect and flawless character. Your character is a work in progress. And as long as it remains a work in progress, you're on the right path. However, if you ever abandon the construction site, which is your character, or you ever dust your hands and say, the work is done, you have gone astray. Paul says that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. That's a fact. So if you're enduring suffering, be encouraged that God is working a miracle in you. He's working a miracle in you. He's forming a character in you that was not previously there. You understand? And oftentimes we can become discouraged by the construction zone, which is our character. We can think, well, I'm not making any progress here. Which is why we need one another, church. We need one another to call out the progress that we're seeing in each other. This is vital. We should always be on the lookout. And when we see God's character in one another, call it out. Man, I see the work that God's doing in you. How you've been much more willing to serve. or How you've been more patient and kind. Woman, I see the conversations you're having with other women. They're so encouraging and full of grace. Young person. I see how bold God is making you to love your friends, that you share the gospel with them, no matter what they'll think. Praise God for his character being formed in you. And church, the reason that it's so important that we do this is because of what we notice Paul says next. He says, character produces hope. Character produces hope. Now, many of us can see pretty well the relationship between suffering and endurance. And we can see the relationship, pretty clear, of endurance building a character, right? Kind of like a diamond's formed. But when we go from character to hope, that's where we kind of, what's the link, right? Well, don't miss this. The only way that character produces hope is if the change in your character is understood 
to be an act of God's grace alone. That's the only way it produces hope. You start doing this, you lose the vital component of hope. May we never do this. A few weeks ago, we listened to a well-known pastor get up and begin to reel off all that he's done for the kingdom. You just sucked yourself dry. This is God's work alone in you. Remember what we said last week about hope. The basis of Christian hope is God. It's a hope built upon his word, his love, his sufficiency, his power, and his promises. So as we understand, remember that word Paul used back in verse 3? As we understand that he is powerfully at work within us, transforming our character to be something that it never was, this produces us to have great hope in him. You see that? Like, I love running into people from my childhood. Some of you would find this embarrassing, but I find it quite funny. When I talk to them, and they've not seen me since high school or college, and they ask me what I'm doing, and I tell them I'm full-time pastor, and then they go, wow, that's interesting. Praise God. Yeah, yeah, it's good. I really wonder what they think about our church. <laughs> like, that's a weird church. Uh, but you see, I get a kick out of it because I know I'm not the man I once was. I'm a new man. <laughs> I'm a new man who a better man, a God man, has created for his own glory. My character is different than it once was, and knowing this gives me hope in the God who began this good work in me and will bring it to completion. Character produces hope. Not in ourselves. No, I'm, I'm less hopeful about myself than I've ever been. Don't miss that. Too many out there preaching, have hope in yourself. Believe in yourself. Stop it. Nobody's messed stuff up for you more than you have. Nobody's failed you more than you have. Your only hope is in God. Paul then says that this hope does not put us to shame. Now, how could this hope put us to shame? Well, one way is that Jesus, if, if Jesus is a liar, this hope puts us to shame if Jesus is a liar. If he's a liar, then quit Christians everywhere are being put to shame. Paul speaks of this elsewhere. But what did Jesus do to seal the fact that he was not lying about who he said he was? He rose from the dead. <laughs> he rose from the dead in front of everybody. <laughs> he didn't rise from the dead and be like, doo, 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 sneaking out of here. He rose from the dead and showed himself to hundreds of people. And those same hundreds of people then gave their lives off the basis that this is a, not a man, not merely a man, but God in the flesh. That's how we have hope. Our hope can't be put to shame. But listen to this. How else might our hope be put to shame? Well, if Christians had nothing but the stories in the Bible 
that wouldn't make us much different from any other religion. I've got to travel the world and talk to many people from many different religions, and all of them have stories. All of them have books, just like we have. You see, but we believe theirs to be false and ours to be true because we have a historical, factual resurrection from a man who said he was God Almighty, as I mentioned, but we also have more, church. Lean in, listen to this. We also have more. Jesus said in John 14, before his departure, he said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. He will be in you. You hear what Jesus is telling his disciples? His very own spirit, the third person of the Godhead, will be in us, (laughs) filling us, never leaving us. So this word that you hold in your hands this morning that we're reading from, check this out, is living and active through the ministry of God's Spirit in you. That's what we believe about the Scriptures. The words you're reading on the page aren't just words on a page. They are words that are the Logos, the One, the the Word Himself, and that Word lives in you, living and active. (laughs) That's what hope we have. This is why we can't be put to shame. Paul says, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given to us. This is where I want to close this morning. Do you know why God allows you to suffer, church? Do you know why he orchestrates suffering in your life? Because he loves you. It's because he loves you. Next week, Carlton is going to talk about that love God has for you explicitly as he's put on display in the next verses. Don't look. Keep it a secret. (laughs) But I want you to know that God loves you, you are his people. More than my mom loved me when she took me to that doctor's office, God loves you. God doesn't destroy those whom he loves. He heals them. But here's the the thing that I want to let you in on. Our God's philosophy is so counter to our culture. It's so counter to our culture. Our culture believes that anything, including words, that harm us should be removed. Should be removed. Any pain, any suffering is never a good thing. And the reason is, is because when we are at the center of the universe, we believe everything should revolve around us. But God's word tells us that He's at the center of the universe, and we will be most happy and most fulfilled in this life if we revolve around him. 
But this goes against every fiber of our being. Because deep down, whether you believe it or not, you want to be God. We all want to be God. We want to call the shots in our life. But let me ask you a question. If you were God, if you were God, what would you do to someone who's trying to dethrone you? What would you do to someone who's trying to make you suffer? Someone who's waging war against you. What would you do with that person? You and I both would probably do away with that person. But Paul says in our verse, you know what God does through that person? He pours his love into our hearts. (laughs) That is counter our culture. That is counter who we are, church. Those who are waging war against him and doing violence to his good world and his creatures, he doesn't smite us. He doesn't remove us from the face of the earth. No, he pours his love into our hearts. That's how a God, our God, responds to people who hate him. Praise God. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Do you know what this means? It means God has taken you as his bride. God has committed himself to you, church. There is nothing more intimate nor nothing more extravagant than what God has done in verse 5. He's poured his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Now, what effect does his love being poured into our hearts have? Let's get practical. What, What does it have? What changes everything? We once loved ourselves and therefore lived for ourselves. Now his love causes us to love him and live for him. You see? Love for ourselves led us to run away from suffering. And now his love empowers us to sit under suffering knowing that we are not alone. This is not meaningless. But the process is doing something and his spirit is with us in the suffering makes me think back to those three Hebrew boys that were thrown into that fire. And how many boys, how many bodies did they see in there? Why? Because God is with us, right? Our love for ourselves would lead us to quit, give up, tap out when things get too painful. But his love for us compels us to endure, knowing that this momentary affliction is creating for us an incomparable weight of glory. Our love for ourselves would create character shortcuts by putting on a facade or not being honest with others. But his love frees us from the shame that says, you've been in a work in progress way too long. Oh, it frees us from that shame. (laughs) Our love for ourselves would hope in temporary things like money, power, and sex. But his love for us produces a hope in the rock of our salvation, Jesus Christ. And in him we derive all goodness. I want to end by reading a portion of 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, church. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. 
For God, who said, light, light, shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But church, we have this treasure in clay jars to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. We are always carrying in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our bodies, his likeness. So we do not lose heart, church. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. As we look to the things, this is important, as we look to the things that are not seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the unseen things are eternal. This is the good news of Jesus, that we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Church Paul wrote these words, inspired by God's Spirit that lives in us, so that you might know the love fueled process that God has and is at work in all of us until the moment we stand before him face to face. This process matters, church. Give yourself to the process and you will rejoice in suffering. And as you do this, this is the key, as you do this, you will shine like a beacon to this world who has no hope in their suffering. And that, church, is when you get to share the good news of why you hope in your suffering, why you rejoice in your suffering. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your kindness this morning. Thank you for your word that sends us soaring, God. Uh, sends us soaring because it's all about you, God. It, it levels any any bit of confidence in self or strength in self, God, but that shows us that we find everything we're looking for in you. Father, I pray if there's, again, if there's anyone here today, God, who has felt hollowed out as we've talked about these things, God, I pray that they would find someone today and speak. And just tell them what's going on, Lord, that they may come to know you and believe in you, God. God, thank you for giving yourself to us. God, you didn't call us to jump through a few hoops and then we could have you. God, you raised our dead bodies up from <laughs> no life and gave us life. Thank you, Jesus. We pray you would continue doing this. And God, we pray that you would give us strength to stand.
Continue pouring your love into our hearts, God. Let us give ourselves to the process. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.